Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview Leanne Young. What philosophers end up doing and, and are still doing today is articulating a lot of the problems that end up getting solved, at least to some extent, in psychological terms. If you like the show and want it to continue, do me a favor and write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Leanne Young. Dr. Leanne Young is a postdoc researcher at MIT's Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences and will join the Department of Psychology at Boston College in July of next year. Today we'll talk about her primary research interest, the psychological basis of our moral judgments. Leanne, welcome to the show. Thanks, Luke. So Leanne, as a philosopher, well, an amateur philosopher, I know that the best way to make progress on traditional philosophical questions is to hand them over to the scientists as quickly as possible. And that's what's been happening in the study of morality for the past decade or so, and it's been very exciting. Could you maybe bring us up to speed on what psychologists and neuroscientists have been learning about morality in the past few years? For example, we might start here. When we make moral judgments, are they mostly rational, calculated judgments, or are they more emotional judgments? That's a great question, and that's kind of where moral psychology started, or what I've been calling contemporary moral psychology about a decade ago. And a lot of this research was inspired by problems in philosophy, as you say, and, and namely one problem in particular that's been known as the trolley problem. So philosophers have been dealing with this problem for decades upon decades. And in this problem, the question is whether it's permissible to harm one person to save many. Mm -hmm. And so in this particular problem, there are two versions. In one case, a trolley is headed towards a group of five people, and the trolley will surely hit and kill those five people unless you turn the trolley away from those five people and onto one person instead. And as most philosophers have discovered and as most ordinary people uh, judge, it's permissible to turn the trolley away from five and onto one. It's a, it's a numbers game and, and quite straightforward. Mm -hmm. But when the problem is morphed into another version where the question instead becomes uh, whether it's permissible to push a man off a footbridge so that his body stops the trolley from hitting the side people further down the track than most people recoil, and judge that that action of, of pushing the man onto the onto the train tracks is highly impermissible, morally forbidden, and right. just you know simply wrong to do. And so that's been known as the trolley problem. The tro the problem being that there's this inconsistent pair of moral intuitions, moral judgments that people seem to have. And so enter moral psychologists to try to figure out why it is that people have these different intuitions. And so Josh Green, a psychologist at Harvard, was among the first to address this problem using empirical tools. And the ultimate kind of suggestion that came out of that research was that there are some kinds of intuitions that we have that are rooted in cognitive controlled processes that get us to what I called the numbers game, five versus one, uh, save the greatest number of people. Mm -hmm. And then another kind of moral judgment that is rooted in more automatic, intuitive, effective-based responses. And that's the response that tells you, you know, don't harm the one person, don't, don't push the man off the bridge. 
particularly in the case when the harm is up close and personal, as, as Josh would say, and particularly emotionally salient. And so Josh's suggestion, uh, and, and many others, has been that this dilemma arises out of a competition between psychological processes that are rooted in the brain. And so we feel this conflict between different psychological systems, and out of that comes this age-old philosophical problem of, of the trolley problem. Yeah, and so that might show that moral judgment is really this matter of different systems in the brain talking to one another and trying to decide between them what our moral judgment should be, whereas up until quite recently, I think most people assumed that moral judgment was this one function of, of some brain feature or just this kind of unified decision-making process. Is that right? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So about a decade ago, again, when moral neuroscientists took up their tools to study how we make moral judgments, it seemed like we were all after the same kind of thing, which was where is the moral faculty? Uh, where is the part of the brain that does morality? Or, you know, where is this unified center? And this assumption was apparent in a lot of the paradigms that were used in functional neuroimaging studies. So what neuroimagers would do would be to present subjects with either moral scenarios, which subjects had to deliver moral judgments for, or uh, non-moral scenarios, such as sentences that were ungrammatical or featured simply conventional violations that that subjects had to read and respond to as well. And what they would do to try to figure out where the moral brain was, was run a subtraction. So the brain uh, activity for moral stuff and brain activity for non-moral stuff. And then the hope was that when you run that subtraction, what you would get would be all the stuff that is specifically moral in the brain. Hmm. And researchers tried really hard to kind of control out all of the possible confounding factors. So you might think that moral stuff would also depend on brain regions that are important for social reasoning, reasoning about people, mm. or like we talked about before, emotional processing. And so they made sure that in their stimuli, the moral scenarios would contain the same number of people as the non-moral stimuli, that the moral and non-moral stimuli would be similarly emotionally salient or, or not emotionally salient. But in fact, what ended up happening in a lot of these studies is that they found greater social activity and emotional activity in the brain for moral judgments versus non-moral judgments. And it, it really seemed like the field started moving in a different direction where people seemed less interested in figuring out where this so-called moral module was in the brain. And people started moving to figure out what are the contributions of these other processes? How does emotion contribute to moral judgment? How does social reasoning contribute to moral judgment? So on. So that's been where a lot of the, the work in psychology and neuroscience uh, has focused on in the, in the past few years. Yeah, and so recently this new picture of moral judgments being dependent on several different systems in the brain, um, that's really making our picture of moral judgment more complex, and I think that's bolstered by another set of experiments having to do with you know, whether or not we're holding a warm cup of coffee for two seconds affects you know, how we make a moral judgment, or whether or not we can smell freshly baked bread uh, from where we are has a big effect on our, our moral judgment. That also seems to be uh, complexifying our understanding of how we make moral judgments. Is that right? 
Yeah, it's interesting. So on the one hand, you could you could say that you know the fact that there are all these different influences on moral judgments makes morality seem really complicated. On the other hand, <laughs> it also makes morality seem kind of simple and stupid. The fact that our moral judgments and moral behaviors are influenced by you know the smell of the room and whether we're holding warm coffee. Yeah. Uh, the fact that all of those influences that are clearly not specific to morality influence how we feel about, you know, the person that we're with. If, if we feel warm, maybe we feel more warmly towards that person or, or we make a less harsh moral judgment, for instance. And I think that this relates to just a lot of the, lot of the traditional social psychology work that's been done on morality even before the contemporary moral psychologists came onto the scene. So we've known for a while that at least our moral behavior is influenced by all sorts of things. Um, and this you know, goes all the way back to the Milgram experiment where people have been shown to do really evil things under certain yeah. situational pressures, under the pressure of authority or pressures of conformity and so on. Ordinary people participating in an experiment at Yale University would follow orders of an authority in, in the form of, a, of an experimenter at Yale to shock another innocent participant at increasingly higher levels of intensity until they thought that what they were doing was shocking another person to death. And yeah. so, you know, before these kinds of experiments, we had different, very different assumptions about human nature and, you know, the extent to which we have control over our behavior and the extent to which our moral character dictates our behavior. And so I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, where moral psychology goes from there and, and whether we'll, you know, move back to studying moral behavior and figure all of that out. Yeah. And uh, a recent wrinkle in the picture is that you've discovered that firing a magnetic pulse to a particular part of the brain just behind the right ear can affect our moral judgments. How does that work? Yeah, you know, it's pretty crazy. In, in this particular study, what we did was use a method called transcranial magnetic stimulation, or uh, TMS for short. And what TMS allows people to do is modulate brain activity. And so depending on the parameters of TMS, researchers have used TMS to both enhance and also uh, suppress uh, brain activity in specific regions with pretty good precision, about a half to a, a full centimeter. And so hmm. what we used TMS to do was target a particular part of the brain that's been known to help us process other people's mental states. So a lot of this research has been done by Rebecca Sachs, who studied the role of this brain region, the right temporoparietal junction, like you said, right above and behind the right ear, uh, the role of this region in non-moral context for how we predict and interpret other people's behavior. And so you can imagine that mental state information, like information about what people are thinking, what people are intending, what people want, is really important for how we evaluate people. And so this comes out particularly in cases when people do things that they don't mean to do, like cause accidents unintentionally, or in cases where people try to do things that are mean and harmful but fail to do them because they have false beliefs about the situation. And so two of the examples that we used in this TMS study were cases of accidents and failed attempts. So in, in one case of an accident, a person would try to put sugar into somebody's coffee, but it turned out to be poison, and so they accidentally poisoned their friend. Hmm. So that would be a case of an accident where you had a good intention but caused a bad outcome. 
And then a case of a, an attempt would be one where you try to poison somebody. You thought you were putting poison into their coffee, but it turned out to be regular sugar, and so you failed to do that. Uh-huh. And so for this study, we gave our participants a whole bunch of different kinds of scenarios just like these ones. And the hypothesis was that when we disrupted activity in this region, we would get participants to judge moral scenarios based more on the outcome rather than the mental state information. Yeah, because that part of our brain that pays attention to or thinks about what other people are thinking and what their intentions are has been, what, disrupted so that part of the brain can't communicate as well or can't function as well? It's still a work in progress as to what exactly TMS is doing, and and surely TMS to one region might have effects not only on that one region, but also to uh, other brain regions to which that region is connected and the whole the whole neural network and system. Uh-huh. But the kind of the working hypothesis here is that when the RTPJ is disrupted, that region is less able to process information about intention mm-hmm. that we're introducing uh, noise into the neuronal firing into that representation. And so the representation of the mental state you know, in the case of an accident, that would be a false belief or a good intention is weakened or, you know, subjects become less confident in that representation. And so moral judgments end up being based on other factors that, you know, matter typically, but maybe matter a little bit less in relation to how important intent is. So when you did the study and you either did or didn't interrupt that brain region that we use to think about other people's intentions. When you did disrupt it, our moral judgments turned out to be more outcome-focused because we weren't taking into consideration the intentions that they might have. And then when you didn't uh, interrupt it, the intentions that we thought they might have made a, lo- a lot bigger difference in their, in their moral judgments? Exactly. So typically, Intent matters a whole lot for our moral judgments, and this shows up not only in our ordinary judgments in our everyday interactions, but it's also codified in the law. So this is the difference between murder and manslaughter, where the action and outcome could be identical in those two cases, but what Mm. really matters a whole lot to both judges and jurors and ordinary people is that one was intentional and one was accidental. Right. And we base a lot of our decisions on this kind of information, you know, who to be friends with, who to stay friends with, who to avoid in the future, who to punish, who to reward. And so typically our moral judgments depend a whole lot on this kind of information, but also to some extent on what actually happens, right? So in a case of an accident where there's a good intent but a bad outcome, intent typically matters a whole lot and outcome matters a little bit also. Mm-hmm. And what happened in our study was that when we disrupted activity in in the spring region, we saw that moral judgments depended more on outcome and less on intent, as you would typically see in, in ordinary judgments. In one way, it's astonishing that something as simple as a magnetic pulse could alter our moral judgments so profoundly. And yet, on the other hand, this is exactly what we would expect if moral judgment is a function of the brain. It's something that happens in the brain. Exactly. I think that this is probably an assumption that most moral psychologists and and neuroscientists have coming into the field that eventually we'll find all of morality rooted in our psychology 
rooted in the brain and our neural processes. And along the way, we'll just be figuring out the details where where things are in the brain and and what kinds of cognitive mm-hmm. processes support different aspects of our of our moral judgments. It's interesting to realize that in the abstract, and another to kind of see it happen in actual experiments, yeah. which I, I find to be pretty compelling. Now, Leanne, in addition to conducting these kinds of experiments, you've also written about the philosophical implications for this kind of work in moral psychology. So let's talk about that. Uh, It seems to me that if this is how moral judgment works, that it's, you know, greatly affected by good smells or warm cups of coffee or magnetic pulses or all kinds of different things in this very messy interaction of many different cognitive systems, it seems to me very unlikely that that mess of processes would be, you know, you know, would be successfully tracking with some kind of steady, objective moral truth that's written into the fabric of the universe, right? So is that where you think the science might be leading, or do you have a different perspective, or maybe it's just too early to predict that kind of uh, judgment about the relation between our moral judgments and any kind of stable moral truth that might exist? It's really hard to say. I think that one obvious possibility is that our psychology is really complicated because morality is really complicated. Whether there's some fact of the matter about morality, whether there are such things as stable moral truths or not, whatever those moral truths are, they could be extremely complicated, just like the world that we live in. And so it's possible that whatever cognitive systems are responsible for tracking those truths uh, have to be just as complicated. Uh, so I'm not sure that the messiness or the braininess of our moral cognitive processes suggest to us that morality as a factor of the matter doesn't exist uh, per se. I do think, though, that all of this research suggests that morality is rooted in our psychology and in our brains. What I can't get around, and it's hard to figure out how to deal with this professionally, is my intuition, and I think a lot of people share this intuition, that there are some things that are actually morally right and morally wrong at the same time, knowing that, you know, there are lots of good reasons for why I might think that, including its evolutionary adaptiveness. So just to put this in concrete terms, we all have this intuition, or at least many of us have the intuition, that there's something worse about murder than manslaughter. Namely, that one is intentional and one is accidental. And yet, if you ask me why I think that intentional murder is worse than accidental manslaughter, I don't think I'd be able to tell you why I think intent matters. That just happens to be the sort of normative bottom line for me. And as a scientist, I don't think I'd be able to give you any sort of rational account for why intent matters, normatively speaking. Now, this relates to some of the the early work of uh, Jonathan Haidt, a psychologist at UVA and one of the founding fathers of contemporary moral psychology. And what he showed us was some really astonishing findings about what he calls moral dumbfounding. So moral dumbfounding is this phenomenon where people have really confident and robust moral judgments about all sorts of things, but when you push them on why they think the things that they think, they can't give you any kind of coherent, rational uh-huh. uh, answer. So the the example that he worked with was a case of brother-sister incest, where he'd interview 
presumably college undergraduates at, at UVA about a case where a brother and a sister decide to sleep together, and then he asks his subjects, well, what's wrong with this picture? Do you, do you find that this is wrong? And, you know, I'm sure 99% of the people say that they find incest to be wrong, and and then John asks them, well, why is that? And, you know, some subjects say, well, you know, they could have babies, and those babies could have genetic defects. And John reminds them, well, actually, they use two forms of birth control, so, you know, no babies. And then subjects say, well, you know, it could lead to psychological harm, particularly if they tell their families and their families get upset about it. And, and John reminds them, well, actually, they kept it a secret and it was a one-time deal and they right. never did it again. Right. And so subjects get increasingly frustrated and dumbfounded by the fact that they still continue to think that what the brother and sister did is wrong, even if they can't come up with any justification for why they think that is. Right. And so John Hyde took this case to be informative of, of how we make all sorts of moral judgments, namely that we have these sorts of gut intuitions that are rooted in emotions that we can't justify. And the fact that we're dumbfounded is good evidence for the fact that these intuitions are, are shaky and, and unreliable and, you know, don't track any, any real sort of moral truth. They're essentially these emotional biases. And I think that's a good picture for what's happening in that case. But I also think you know, for better or for worse, that happens across the board for all kinds of moral judgments, including the moral judgments that we would stand by, even in a court of law, for instance, you know, the fact that we think intentional harm is worse than accidental harm, or killing is worse than letting die, for instance. And so there are all, all these sorts of normative philosophical distinctions that ordinary people and psychologists and even philosophers can't necessarily justify in 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 other terms, aside from the terms offered by the, the distinction itself. And I don't know whether, you know, finding these distinctions in the brain or not being able to come up with further normative proof is good cause for throwing them out as biases or any sort of unstable psychological pattern. But it's a tough question because I don't know whether it's a question that science will be able to answer or when that, that philosophy necessarily will be able to answer. I think it's the, the kind of question that we all deal with in our heads and, and just try to sort through what are, the, what are the sorts of moral bottom lines that I have independent of whether I have further justification for them. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier the evolutionary story that has been developing about why we make the moral judgments that we do and why we have the moral intuitions that we do. And uh, especially if, as we're finding, moral judgments are something that happen as a result of the particular way that our brains are wired, uh, which includes that, you know, holding a warm cup of coffee is going to change our, our moral judgments. The brain is something that evolved, you know, and so it looks like moral judgment is this thing that evolved and a problem that a lot of people have pressed called the Darwinian dilemma for, for you know, morality is... If there's some kind of objective truth about morality that's independent of how humans happened to evolve, it would seem like an extraordinary coincidence if the n nature of our evolution just happened to be such that our brains worked to give somewhat correct 
moral judgments, right? I mean, there would there would either have to be some kind of causal link where moral facts in the world are causing our intuitions, or we would have have to happen to have evolved to have a brain chemistry that would make correct moral judgments, and that just seems very implausible. What do you think about all that? No doubt. I think that, you know, putting on my, my scientist hat again <laughs> and taking off my ordinary person hat, I absolutely agree. I think that a lot of this points to the possibility that morality, as we all understand it, doesn't in fact exist. And I guess what I mean by that is that if we take morality to be something along the lines of what is actually factually right and wrong the way that 2 plus 2 equals 4, mm -hmm. what guides us to, you know, find the right people who are, you know, actually good people, there are all sorts of good evolutionary debunking accounts that give us other reasons for why we feel the way that we do. So in evolutionary terms, morality seems to be something that helps us figure out who the right social partners are, who to mate with who to trust, who not to trust, who to punish, who to reward, and so on. And all of those functions don't really line up with the ordinary concept of what morality is supposed to be. So again, I think morality is really complicated, and I think people across different cultures and, and surely different individuals have different ideas about the content of morality and what things actually are right and, and are wrong. But for all of those different kinds of definitions, I think that what those definitions of morality don't include and can't include is that morality is just a tool that happens to be adaptive for finding the right social partners, for figuring out how to regulate other people's behavior, how to deal with people, and so on. And so I think it was Steve Pinker probably who at one point said, just because we discover that a mother treats her child in a certain way because it's mm -hmm. evolutionarily adaptive for her to do so doesn't reduce the significance, the moral significance of that particular behavior. But, you know, I'm not sure what I think about that. I think that for morality, there might be deeper impl implications that if morality is just a, a, an adaptive tool, then we're deeply mistaken in some sense about what morality actually is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what occurs to me now is that even if it turns out that, well, morality is really just this adaptive tool, I think we're going to find that the morality that we evolved on the African savanna is very often going to not be a very good tool in the modern world. For example, you know, it might have been adaptive to have this sort of... Um, inner racist that, that uh, we evolved for reasons of, uh, you know, sticking to our tribe and, and not trusting people who are significantly different than us and that kind of thing. Um, but that's really going to hurt you in a world where you need to trade with Asia and <laughs> you, you need to uh, live in a, in a multicultural society and that kind of thing. And there have been a lot of experiments showing that a lot of us are implicit racists, even if we have decided not to be racist, that we still make judgments uh, of other races that are that are negative in, in kind of very sneaky ways. And there, uh, there might be a lot of things like that, where the values and the way of, of pro moral processing that we originally evolved over, you know, millions and millions of years is maybe not so useful, even just as a tool in the modern world. 
Absolutely. And I think that, you know, what you're getting at is how psychology could potentially be useful and enlightening for people in actually getting us uh, away from these implicit racial or gender biases that none of us mm -hmm. or, or most of us wouldn't want to have. And I think that if only moral psychology could also help us, you know, move out of that outmoded psychology and into an enlightened morality, that'd be, that'd be really ideal. I also do think it's interesting, though, that we all have the intuition, and you might call this, you know, part of meta-ethics, that having these sorts of biases is wrong, and we want to move out of those biases, and this relates to certain kinds of morality, so about justice and fairness and rights and so on. And these are all moral intuitions also. And I think it'll be really interesting to see, you know, how we make these sorts of moral decisions and what is the psychology of our meta-ethics? How can we be confident in our meta-ethical views when, when we discover that those meta-ethical views are rooted in our evolved brains and our psychology too? So like you, I, I shared those same intuitions and I wonder when we'll start studying the, the psychology of our meta-ethics as well. Well, and you've written uh, some on that already. You <laughs> have introduced this topic and, and said, hey, let's talk about this. You've written that the long-standing theories of morality, like utilitarianism, Kantian ethics, virtue-based ethics, uh, and also some of the long-standing moral dilemmas about whether it's right to sacrifice one individual's rights for the greater good or how people could be morally responsible without having contracausal free will powers, how those theories and those dilemmas may be rooted in human psychology. And could you expand on that? What did you mean by that? You and I started talking about the trolley problem, and I think that's one great example of how yeah. a moral theory or different moral intuitions could be rooted in different psychological systems where one intuition, namely that it good to save more people than fewer people may be rooted in parts of the brain that do ordinary calculations. And these are what uh, folks have called the, the controlled cognitive processes. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there might be another intuition that tells us don't hurt another person. And that might be rooted in lower level automatic uh, emotion-based processes, and sometimes, particularly in the case of moral dilemmas, those two intuitions, those two outputs of psychological processes are at odds, and that's what gives rise to mm -hmm. a particular kind of dilemma. And of course, usually a dilemma emerges when, at least in the philosophical domain, when different competing philosophical theories give rise to different answers. And the psychological suggestion is that one particular theory that says don't harm other individuals, don't use other people as a means to an end, or a, or a deontological theory might be rooted in the parts of the brain that respond to these salient emotional harms to other people, whereas a utilitarian theory, you know, go with the numbers, might be rooted in a so-called numbers part of the brain. And so... While a philosopher might say that uh, a dilemma arises out of, you know, different competing normative theories, a psychologist might say that, in fact, 
a dilemma is is purely psychological, that actually if each of these theories is rooted in uh, different different brain systems or different cognitive systems, then what what you'll end up with is a dilemma also. And and this is um, a lot of the work that a, a psychologist at Harvard, Fari Cushman, has been developing. Well, and the part of the brain that you knocked out with a magnet to do your studies, you know, that might contribute a great deal to a virtue-based type of ethics where we're focusing on what are people's intentions, what is their inner character, regardless of what the results of their actions are or whether people have rights or that kind of thing. And the picture I'm hearing from you that you're suggesting, at least, is that um, you know, our moral intuitions, our, our gut feeling about what's right and wrong, our judgments seem to be this interplay of all these different systems in the brain. And which meta-ethical theory or normative ethical theory you think is correct, you know, utilitarianism or virtues, ethics or whatever, might depend a lot on which uh, part of your brain is winning, so to speak, in the moral judgments. Right. That's that's totally fascinating. So we've certainly found individual differences in brain activity and that these individual differences in brain activity are, in fact, correlated with yeah. moral judgments on just these kinds of scenarios. So uh, in one study uh, that I ran this was with Rebecca Sachs, we found that people who tended to have higher activity in the right TPJ, the part of the brain that processes mental state information, those people tended to be more forgiving of accidental harms. And how we interpreted that result was that people who have higher activity in this brain region are more able or more likely or willing to think hard that somebody who causes an accident didn't mean to do it. And so they're more right. likely to let that accidental harmer off the hook, whereas other people who have particularly low activity in that uh, brain region are more likely to hold the person responsible for causing the accident, presumably because they're focusing more on the outcome rather than the fact that the person didn't mean to do it. And this is particularly interesting as we're starting to look at, a, at, at different populations too. So there's been a lot of work uh, done, not by me, but by developmental psychologists on moral judgment in young children. And uh, children are a particular population doesn't seem to reason as much about intentions as as mature adults. So hmm. children are also more likely to hold people responsible for accidents, to blame people for causing harm, even if they didn't mean to do it. And so Piaget, a developmental psychologist, was the first to come up with this theory. And what he did was to give children two scenarios where intention and outcomes were at odds. So in one case, a little boy broke five teacups uh, accidentally, he just swiped them off the counter purely by accident. He was trying to help his mom clean up. And another boy took his mother's teacup, just one of them, and smashed it on the floor intentionally. And young children are asked, which which boy is more naughty? And children around five, six, seven tend to say that the boy who broke more teacups was more naughty, even though he did it purely by accident and uh, had good intentions. And so children seem to be making these sorts of outcome-based moral judgments and it turns out that the RTPJ actually has a different pattern in young children and takes a long time to mature over development. So it's possible that there's a connection between what's going on in the brain, particularly in this region, and how young children uh, make moral judgments. And here's something that I would love to discover. I don't know if this has been studied yet, but I wonder if 
people who tend to be more calculating, logical, that kind of thing, also tend to be more utilitarian, become, and maybe people who, well, like you say already, you know, that uh, the people who have more activity or quicker activity or stronger activity or whatever in that region behind the right ear, I wonder if those people are more inclined towards a, a different type of normative view. Um, you talked about how so the people with more activity in the RTPJ, you already said that they are more likely to excuse accidents, but I, I wonder if uh, it even influences which normative view they find more, more plausible. And I wonder if the same thing is true with the apparent relation between uh, this very calculating approach to life and uh, utilitarian normative theory. Yeah, that's totally interesting. You know, you had mentioned before the, the potential relationship between RTPJ and and virtue ethics, and that's something that I I hadn't really thought too much about before. I actually think that um, there's probably a difference even within the kinds of internal states that matter to people. So on the one hand, character and virtue seem to matter a whole lot, and of course this hinges to some extent on whether character traits exist as as philosophers like Gil Harmon and, and John Doris have debated, and, and certainly this has been debated in the psychological literature as well. Yeah. So, so a difference between those sorts of stable personality traits uh, on the one hand, and what I've been describing in relation to the RTPJ, which has to do with these transient mental states, like what you're thinking at the time of your action and, and what your belief happens to be. But I wonder about the relationship between those two kinds of internal states, thoughts and beliefs and desires on the one hand, and stable personality traits on the other, and whether you were to divide people up into two groups, whether you would find virtue ethicists on the one hand, and people who are more inclined to reason based on transient thoughts, beliefs, and desires, and then on the other hand, utilitarians who are more interested in pure outcomes. Now, one hint of this, which is just purely anecdotal, just in talking to utilitarian philosophers, comes again from the trolley problem, where one of the theories that uh, emerged out of the philosophical literature on the trolley problem had to do with intention, and this was the difference between intended harms and, and purely foreseen harms. So in the case where you are pushing the man off the bridge so that his body serves as a trolley stopper, you're using that man as a necessary means to an end, and that's considered to be intended harm by deontological philosophers. Uh, whereas in the other case, when you're simply turning a trolley away from five people and onto one person, you don't require that the one person be on the sidetrack in order to accomplish your end of saving the five people. He simply, he simply, a, or his death is simply a foreseen side effect, but not intended in any, in any robust way. So utilitarian philosophers tend to say, well, you know, that distinction is just bunk. That's post hoc rationalization for what is actually a difference in uh, emotional salience of the harm that you're doing in one case and the other. Because what really matters and what everybody knows is that in both cases, you know that you're going to be right. uh, causing the death of one person right. and saving the lives of five people. And that's, after all, what matters, what you're doing and, and the fact that you know what you're doing. And so I think what's interesting about that kind of utilitarian explanation is that it also depends on 
the extent to which you know what you're doing. So I wonder about, you know, I wonder about the relationship between that subtle difference between intended and foreseen harms where, as the utilitarian points out, you know what you're doing in both cases, and this kind of coarser distinction that, as I said before, comes out in the law and, and all sorts of places, uh, namely between intentional and accidental harms. It'd be interesting to push utilitarians on the extent to which that, ki that kind of mental state information actually matters. Now, if some picture like this turns out to be true about the psychological basis and the brain basis for what turns out to be, uh, you know, the philosophical theory of morality that each of us finds most plausible, um, how do you think philosophers would should respond to that data if that turns out to be true? Hmm. Well, it's interesting because most of the philosophers I, I talk with and, and interact with are among the people who are generating the data. Uh, and so I've had the good fortune of getting to know a whole bunch of uh, empirical philosophers who do just the same kinds of experiments that psychologists and neuroscientists do. But I think that w what a philosopher could do is think hard about these kind of psychological solutions to the problems. I think that what philosophers end up doing and, and are still doing today is articulating a lot of the problems that end up getting solved, at least to some extent, in psychological terms. So when I say solved, I, I don't mean that, you know, philosophers pose something like the trolley problem and then scientists come up with the answer, but I think that what philosophy and, and science do together well is, is constrain each other's programs and theories. So something that scientists can do, and, and we've been kind of talking about this with respect to virtue ethics and, and situationism, is that you know philosophers might have some theories that are based on a certain set of assumptions that are actually empirical assumptions. For instance, the fact that something like virtue or character exists. And then a psychologist might say, well, actually, those factual assumptions about human behavior are mistaken. Right. And in fact, situations account for a lot more of people's behavior than you might think. And so a virtue ethicist would then deal with that problem and presumably amend the, the normative theories accordingly. So it's interesting. One case of this that I witnessed just last week was at a workshop uh, hosted by this organization called Culture in the Mind over in England, and it brought together a whole bunch of anthropologists, psychologists, neuroscientists, economists, and of course philosophers. And one of the philosophers at the workshop gave a talk on guilt. Uh, this was Gil Harmon, a philosopher at Princeton. And I had heard him talk about guilt before, and his normative account specifically was that guilt is not required for morality, that a moral person need not be guilty when they do something wrong, which is a very provocative normative theory. And <laughs> what was funny was that when he, when he was introducing this idea, he said what he started with was just his own introspective experience, which was that, you know, he doesn't feel guilt, and he doesn't think of himself as an immoral person. And, of course, we all laugh, and he was <laughs> chuckling, too. Uh, but actually, a lot of philosophy happens that way, and, and probably a lot of yep. psychology, too, where you start with this intuition that's based on your own experience, and then you have to test it out. And what Gill did was a, a, lot of, a, a lot of philosophy and a lot of thinking and analysis about these claims in, in relation to other normative theories about the role of guilt and how guilt ought to matter for morality, but what Gill ended up doing at this workshop was giving a talk with a graduate student, also in philosophy, Corey Malley, 
who brought to Gill's attention all of this psychological literature suggesting how guilt is incredibly adaptive, how guilt motivates people to behave better the next time around, either consciously or unconsciously. Uh-huh. And that actually resulted in this kind of neat compromise where Gill discovered that what he was conceptualizing as guilt was actually known as shame in the psychological literature. And so it was, it was really neat to see kind of huh. how this psychological distinction between guilt and shame was actually quite helpful in resolving these debates in philosophy and also how a philosopher could be moved. And of course, Gill is very empirically minded, so he's doing a lot of the generation of these ideas for empirical work. But it was, it was just neat to see that it mattered to the normative theory how yeah. guilt could be adaptive psychologically and, you know, and functionally and so on in, in everyday life. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting to see that kind of uh, interaction between neuroscientists and psychologists and philosophers and anthropologists and economists. It's really, a, it's really a, a, perhaps a golden age of this type of research in that way. Oh, totally. I, I absolutely agree. I think that what's really neat is that I think philosophers are generating a lot of the problems that psychologists become interested in. And then, and then in turn, I think philosophers are becoming increasingly sympathetic to the to the empirical work and trying to figure out how to make everything work and and uh, take into account what actually is the case in the real world into their normative theories. Well, it, Leanne, uh, about this interaction between science and philosophy, I began with this comment that was very deferential to science about how you know, uh, the quickest way to make progress on philosophical problems is to hand them over to the scientists if possible. And that's a very common view, actually, even among philosophers. It's basically what naturalism is. So, you know, the idea is that science doesn't need to justify itself, really. I mean, just science works. This is how we get to the moon. This is how we defeat diseases, all that kind of thing. But some would say that philosophy really does need to justify itself. After all, philosophers are still struggling to answer the same questions that Plato raised 2,400 years ago. And so, as someone who has a foot in both worlds in science and philosophy, I'd love to hear your answer to the question, what good is philosophy? Hmm. Well, I think philosophy does a lot of good. I think that, well, I often wonder whether moral psychology would exist as a field if not for moral philosophy or just philosophy in general. But, but then again, it's a, it's a funny question to ask myself because I can't imagine moral philosophy not existing because I think that since the beginning of time, we've been interested in questions about right and wrong, questions about free will, and the problem of evil, and so on. And so I think that moral philosophy arose out of ordinary people's ordinary questions about, about life and, and morality. And I think that what philosophy has done and is continuing to do is articulating those important questions and the various theoretical answers to those questions, how we ought to behave and, and how we ought to think. And what science can can work with philosophy on is what of those answers are just impossible answers and what are better answers, what are worse answers. And so philosophy could tell us that, you know, a particular solution to the problem is by reasoning through it. And psychologists can say, well, either we do that or we don't do that and maybe lend a hand in helping us get to 
the right sort of solution that a philosopher would endorse. At least that's that's the that's the hope of something like moral psychology to actually make us into better people. And I think philosophers can continue to advise us on that and and help us figure out what those aims are. And psychology can you know help us along the way and figure out possibly how we can get there. Well, Leanne, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Luke. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing Robert M. Price about the crisis of biblical authority. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot 